Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season nine, episode six, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing the 2003 supernatural thriller, Gothica. It was written by Sebastian Gutierrez and directed by Matthew Kasovitz. It stars Halle Berry, Robert Downey Jr., Charles S. Dutton, Bernard Hill, and Penelope Cruz. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. Uh, Abby, would you please read us the plot summary? Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> Rational psychiatrist Dr. Miranda Gray wakes in the Woodward Penitentiary as a patient after a car accident on a rainy night, accused of brutally murdering her husband, Doug. Insisting on her innocence, she works with her friend and former colleague, Dr. Graham, to unravel the mystery of her accusation, discover the root of her frightening hallucinations and dreams, and uncover the truth about her husband's murder. There is more than meets the eye when Dr. Gray discovers the truth about the women she was treating at Woodward, and as visions of a mysterious young girl appears to her as an apparition, she reveals a sinister plot involving her husband and the town sheriff. Will Miranda solve the mystery surrounding her husband's death before it is too late, or will she be doomed to a lifetime in Woodward Penitentiary for a murder she didn't commit? Tune in next week on another episode (laughs) of Gothica. I know, it sounds like an old-timey, like, 1920s gothic noir. (laughs) No, I know. I mean, our Ginger Snaps plot summary was the same way. But we do this now, everyone, so that you watch the movie. I know. Also, we just put way too much detail into it. (laughs) (laughs) That too. (laughs) I like the... The sweet condensed versions that we do. They're pretty great. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so let's get into the production of the film. And um, this is kind of awkward because I couldn't find anything about the behind the scenes of this film. Unbelievable. (laughs) I truly couldn't. I I have a few things here and there, but it's like not in the detail that we normally do. Uh, I saw that the special edition DVD has an audio commentary track with the director and writer. But um, they only really talk about, like, technical film stuff, apparently, and not really anything else. Like, nothing really about the characters or the story or, like, inspirations in that sense. So I really couldn't justify buying the special edition DVD on Amazon for $50. Whoa. Just for that. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, but I am going to be giving you a few a few tidbits that I found here and there on various Wikipedia pages. Uh, 
I watched a few interviews of the actors talking about the film. They did not give any sort of great stories that I could find in these interviews on YouTube, uh, mostly because their interviewers uh, were not good. <laughs> so oh, they, man. Asked, they asked some questions like, do you believe in ghosts? <laughs> and Robert Downey Jr. is like, yes, I do. <laughs> So oh it was pretty God. funny. It was funny, but it was like nothing worth writing here. Um, yeah. So I did go to Robert Downey Jr.'s Wikipedia page, and it said there, quote, after being arrested multiple times and going in and out of rehab, Downey returned to mainstream films in the mid-2000s with Gothica, for which producer Joel Silver withheld 40% of his salary until after production wrapped as insurance against his addictive behavior, unquote. Wow. Yeah, so that was, I mean, Iron Man was like his big break, but like Gothica was the first movie that he did when he got out of rehab. Man, yeah. Director Matthew Kasovitz, quote, used the money he made from Gothica to develop a far more personal project called Babylon Babies, an adaptation of one of Maurice on textbooks and you may not know Kasovitz as a director but as an actor he plays Nino in Amelie and he has a small role in the fifth element and in the movie birthday girl so if you've seen Amelie I know if you've seen Amelie you'll recognize him as the love interest that's because when I saw interviews that that he did I was like this guy looks so familiar (laughs) he's from Amelie nice okay in a 20, 2004 interview with iVillage UK, Halle Berry and the interviewer talk about a few behind-the-scenes moments. The interviewer says, You throw yourself about a lot in this film. I wonder if you injured yourself. And Halle Berry replies, In Gothica, I had a broken arm. It was in a scene that didn't involve any stunts. Robert Downey Jr. twisted my arm the wrong way and it just broke. And then she laughs. <laughs> Then she says, but we're friends. <laughs> it was an accident. Just one of those freaky things that happened while making this odd movie. So we had to stop filming for eight weeks while I had a full-blown cast on. And after that, my full arm cast was reduced to a very small thin cast from my wrist to my elbow. And I finished with that little cast on. Then the interviewer asks, was it the same arm that your character injures on screen during the film? And she says, no, it was the other arm. (laughs) But we thought it would be a good camouflage. People would think it was the arm that was bandaged, so they never really looked at the other arm. And I think a lot of people maybe missed the cast on the other arm because they were so focused on the arm with the white bandage. In a few places in the movie, you can see my cast, but nobody seems to have noticed it. Which, I didn't notice it, so. No, I didn't either. Sneaky, sneaky. (laughs) So according to Box Office Mojo, Gothica was released on November 21st, 2003 in North America, grossing $19.3 million in the opening weekend and ranking at number two behind The Cat in the Hat. <laughs> nice. It went on to gross $59.7 million in the U.S. and $81.9 million from foreign markets for a worldwide total of one. million, unquote. Uh, So even though the film was a financial success, it was a critical failure. 
And I want to share with you what is considered a fresh review from Rotten Tomatoes by Mark H. Harris. Quote, quote, there's nothing particularly original, gory or scary about Gothica. It's a really it's a really weak R rating, but it's more or less competent. (laughs) That was that was a fresh rating on Gothica. That was what that that's how bad the critical reviews are. Oh my god, this movie. <laughs> that sucks. Like yes. what the heck? Because but also you know what? What? <laughs> I feel like all the bad ratings come from that horrible fucking limp biscuit song that plays at the end credits. <laughs> you know what? I was talking to a friend of mine who watched the show and they were like and they were like I immediately immediately this film was dated as soon as that song started playing. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, that's so true. My husband and I were like, "Oh, Behind Blue Eyes. We love this song." And then they start singing and we're like, "Fred Durst?" <laughs> <laughs> So bad. So bad. The early 2000s. What a time to be alive. What a time. (laughs) So that's all I got for behind the scenes. Um, So the Bechdel test. Yes, it passes. It actually passes once between Halle Berry and Penelope Cruz's character. So even though they talk a lot in this film, there's only one instance where it passes. So at least it passes. Okay, so let's uh, discuss Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. Did a woman write, direct, produce, or edit the film? Yes, the film was produced by Susan Levin. And fun fact, Robert Downey Jr. is married to her. They met while making this movie. Love. Love at first sight. Yeah. (laughs) Was the final girl or main character a person of color? Yes. Halle Berry. (laughs) Woohoo. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. Okay, so let's start off the discussion by talking about black women and mental health. According to Janira Eldridge, quote, the story of Miranda Gray feels like a mirror image of the experience of every black woman who's ever experienced mental illness. Throughout the entire ordeal, Miranda is told to just take her medication and confess to the horrible crime she's committed. No one wants to really help her. They just want her to fess up to her crime so she can be medicated and locked away for good. Why does this sound so damn much like being a black woman suffering from mental illness? Black women are always expected to be reliable, fierce, and hold everything together at all times. What happens when she's suddenly showing signs of unraveling and she's no longer herself? People just want her to be silent, get back to her daily grind, and stop causing trouble. Meanwhile, the woman suffering is terrified and tries to act as normal as possible while she's being terrorized by her mental illness. Even at the end of the movie, when Holly Berry proves she isn't crazy, we never know it's truly vindicated in the eyes of the people close to her, unquote. Yeah, uh, and according to Elise C. Ward... 
quote, approximately 7.5 million African-Americans have been diagnosed with a mental illness and up to 7.5 million more have been affected but are undiagnosed. And that was from a 2005 study. Women may be overrepresented in these populations given the reported two to one gender ratio of depression. Additionally, negative socio-political experiences, including racism, discrimination, and sexism, put African-American women at risk of low-income jobs, multiple role strain, and health problems, all of which are associated with the onset of mental illness. Although African-American women are burdened by mental illness, their use of mental health services is low, unquote. Yeah, and a lot of that came from like studies from the early 2000s, but this mm-hmm. is still a thing, BT dubs. Even though years later we might consider ourselves to be a little more aware of the issues facing Black Americans, there are obviously still huge gaps in the way Black people are treated in the mental health system. And that includes employment as well, not just as patients. Um, according to prevention.com, Once you've decided to seek out a therapist, finding one you click with can be harder than getting your insurance company to rectify a mistake on a claim. Now, imagine how much more difficult that might be if you needed one who deeply understood your background. Unfortunately, the number of African Americans in the mental health profession is low. Only about 4% of psychologists, for example, are black. With the dual pandemics of racism and COVID-19 upon us, black women are overwhelmed, says Neil Barnett. We don't have time to explain to a therapist what it means to be black and female in this country. We don't have the energy to educate our therapists about who we are as black women. That's one of the reasons why I started my practice, says cognitive behavioral therapist Tamika Lewis, LCSW, founder of Women of Color Therapy, Inc., which serves the greater Los Angeles area. She notes that she's one of just a few black therapists for one of the largest health insurance providers in the region. So I think also what I really like about this film is that it is takes a look at what it means to be like the quote-unquote strong black woman um, from Miranda's professional setting and even into her transition as a patient. Like, Miranda is super calm and collected in the face of everyday challenges that she has to conquer. Talking to her patients, dealing with technical difficulties in the penitentiary, talking to her husband and telling him her professional opinion about what's happening with the women in the penitentiary. But when she is accused of killing her husband, she demands to know why she's being held and tells the orderlies not to touch her, and they paint her as this hysterical patient. She goes from being a respected doctor to becoming lost in the shuffle of these poor women. In that same article for prevention that I mentioned before, strong black woman syndrome is mentioned. One thing that keeps many black women from reaching out for help is the belief that we should be able to handle anything on our own. It's been bred into black women that we have to be strong all the time, but it's a trap, says Monica Williams, PhD, a psychologist and Canada researcher chair of mental health disparities at the University of Ottawa. The idea of putting an S on your chest and declaring yourself a superheroine has its upside. Recent 
research shows that there's power in the strong black woman syndrome that helps black women deal with the racial discrimination we face. But there is a negative impact on our health and well-being as we push ourselves too hard and put others' needs before our own. If you have a machine running all the time and it never turns off, it burns out, explains Williams. Strong black woman syndrome makes us terrible at self-care. Strong black woman syndrome often arises because black women who need support are not offered any. Williams recalls going on a ziplining trip last April and being the only black person there. The guides had helped everyone except her secure her harness and were <gasps> preparing to leave. But Williams pointed out that she hadn't been assisted. The attendants weren't trying not to see me, she says. They seemed just as baffled as I was that they'd overlooked me. But black women are often invisible in society. They're considered the least important and are the least protected. How do you get your healthcare needs met when nobody sees or hears you? Oh my god, that infuriates me. Yeah. <gasps> oh, tell me about it. So we definitely see this happen in the film when Miranda brings her concerns forward to her husband. Like in the beginning when she's talking about how she thinks the women are being over-medicated. Mm -hmm. And then we see it again when she becomes a patient advocating for herself and no one seems to listen and she's swept under the rug and it happens so often. It's such a huge issue in the healthcare industry and in the mental health field. And it's infuriating because there's like a whole population of people. I mean, mental health care is not great in our country it's like no it sucks it's not on the up and up so i can only imagine like i can't even imagine because i would i'm never in their shoes but like how awful it must be if you're a black person seeking help and you're just like overlooked all the time by therapists and doctors at like we've talked about this before with medicine and women uh, black women who give birth yeah. Um, yep. They're never given the proper medication. They're never given the proper uh, healing medication even. Uh, they're not believed when they're like, hey, so like I'm still gushing blood. And they're like, or like oh, hey, this hurts. <laughs> yeah. And it's always like, oh, you're fine. And then they die. It's yeah. so traumatic and scary and horrifying. Yeah. We're going to come back to this at the very end of the episode so stay tuned um <laughs> until then let's talk about gothica the name and gothic horror and domestic noirs so according to bryn ramella quote the word gothica has been added to urban dictionary with multiple definitions since the movie's release one definition states that gothica which can also be spelled gothica with a c is a term for a situation in which someone sees or feels things that no one else can. Another definition states that Gothica is a terrifying dream or vision. The final definition sarcastically states that Gothica is simply a cool-sounding word chosen for the title of a Halle, Halle Berry movie, <laughs> which would truly be the easiest answer and possibly even the correct one. <laughs> yeah. Two of the three Urban Dictionary definitions for the word were added after Gothica's release date, further proving that the title doesn't really have a true definition. Hmm. So there you go. It's a made-up word. Cool. <laughs> cool. A little Shakespearean tidbit. <laughs> yeah. 
But it obviously has some connection to gothic literature because there are a lot of similar themes in the film. Mm. According to Screen Rant, some fans believe that the horror movie's title is a reference to gothic literature. This style of literature is a subset of horror fiction that often includes romance and death. Over the years, it's become associated with dark, gloomy colors, and this theme is clearly in keeping with Gothica. The horror movie is all about horror, romance, and death, and the movie's color scheme is incredibly cold and dim as well, unquote. And this was something that I immediately noticed on my second viewing of this film, which was for this episode. I was telling Abby this before we started recording, but the first and last time I saw this film was in 2006. And I think somebody I knew in college must have had it on DVD, so we watched it, or I rented it from the library or something. But that was the last time, so I really didn't know much about this stuff, obviously. I was a wee babe. (laughs) Uh, But watching it this time, I noticed a lot of gothic literary themes. Uh, So let's look at some of those themes and tropes and see what's in the film. According to Tamar Jeffers, quote, since its literary beginnings, the Gothic has featured distinctive female characters who engage with and are often central to the uncanny narratives characteristic of the genre. The epitomous Gothic heroine conjures up images of the imperiled young and inexperienced woman cautiously exploring the old dark house or castle where she is physically confined by force, imprisoned by the tale's tyrant, or metaphorically trapped by societal expectations of marriage and domesticity, unquote. Okay, so obviously Miranda is an experienced woman. She's a doctor, for crying out loud. (laughs) Uh, However, she has been thrown into a situation that she is inexperienced in, which is the paranormal. Her whole life has been about science, and now she has to solve a mystery that involves ghosts and a bit of Catholic lore as well. She's also imprisoned in the hospital by the tyrant, but it's not so much Robert Downey Jr., who is her friend, uh, but I feel like it's more of the sheriff. Mm, I hate the sheriff. Oh my gosh, that actor is so good at being a terrible person. (laughs) He's such a dick. So uh, Jeffers continues and says, quote, The gothic heroine is habitually motivated by an investigative spirit and usually explores her surroundings in a quest to uncover a sinister secret which will, for example, reveal her love interests past or provide explanation for her supposedly supernatural encounters, unquote. Mm, nice. Okay, yeah, so this is exactly what happens in Gothica. I don't feel like I need to further explain this. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's pretty cut and dry. Her husband is a terrible person who traps women in a basement <laughs> or oh. whatever in a oh, farm. Oh, God. <laughs> and, um, yeah, he's basically Bluebeard. And there are ghosts. <laughs> Wow, I did not even make that Bluebeard connection. Absolutely. Uh, So according to Jane Healy, quote, many gothic heroines come upon hidden rooms which hold within them secrets of the women that came before them, their husbands, first wives or their mothers. Uh, So this is also in the film, but it's framed a bit differently. Uh, Miranda discovers the hidden room at her and her husband's summer home, and she finds out it's where he and the sheriff sexually abused and killed young women. She even finds one woman still alive. So there are like no technical past wives in this film, but there are women that Miranda was unaware of that were killed and abused. 
And Miranda herself is never in danger from her husband, but she is in danger from the sheriff who tries to rape and kill her at the end of the film. And the sheriff has been continuously raping Chloe. So in this case, like she is also like a secret woman from the past whose fate echoes Miranda's. And of course, thankfully, both Chloe and Miranda come out of this alive. Yeah, was really happy to see that actually in the end. Yes, the two women of color come out alive, which is good. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so according to Sylvia Marino Garcia, quote, as Joanna Russ explains in her essay, somebody's trying to kill me and I think it's my husband, the modern gothic. <laughs> what a title. <laughs> the 1960s gothic romance ultimately resembled a crossbreed between Jane Eyre and Rebecca. If you haven't read those books, please do. They're wonderful, especially Rebecca. Um, And publishers such as Terry Carr believed that the appeal of the books was that they featured, quote unquote, women who marry guys and then begin to discover their husbands are strangers. So there's a simultaneous attraction, repulsion, love, fear going on. Whatever the plot variation, graphic novels allowed for excitement, romance, and subliminated sexual desire, as well as providing the heroine with a certain level of agency. After all, she had to survive and solve the mystery, even if the killer was inside the house with her. Yet, by the end of the 1970s, the gothic novels seemed to vanish from shelves. What happened? tastes changed. Fans who had previously turned to these books now looked for emergent, spicier romances such as The Flame and the Flower, and readers were more inclined to chills were about to discover Stephen King and the joys of 1980s horror boom. And so the genre died. Or did it? Some writers continued to write gothic novels, even if they were less common than before. V.C. Andrews was probably the only heavy hitter in the 1980s mining this niche with Flowers in the Attic. But I believe that rather than disappear completely, what happened was that the impulses behind the gothic novel mutated and eventually gave birth to what we call the domestic noir. In The Contested Castle, gothic novels and the subversion of domestic ideology by Kate Ferguson Ellis, uh, argues that the gothic literature presents the middle-class home as a paradox, a site which should feel safe but instead turns horrific. Julia Crouch has defined domestic noir as a genre which takes place primarily in homes and workplaces, concerns itself largely but not exclusively with the female experience, and is based around relationships as its base, a broadly feminist view that the domestic sphere is a challenging and sometimes dangerous prospect for its inhabitants, unquote. In domestic noirs, heroines might still fear their husbands, but they also seem to be frightened of a wider variety of people, including neighbors, friends, and even employees, the roller coaster taking them through numerous peaks and valleys of anxiety. So this is um, interesting because this sounds like it's a bit closer to what we see in the for the plot of Gothica. Mm-hmm. Because Miranda is in a work setting and she's trapped in her work setting yeah. as, a, as a patient instead of a doctor. And she's also extremely wary of everyone around her in this setting. Uh, so that would be also like a domestic noir. Like you are wary of your coworkers. And that's exactly what happens to her in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, she is 
you know, wary of what happened to her husband, but she's also wary of Robert Downey Jr.'s character, who is her best friend, and Chloe, who is her patient, and then the sheriff, who is a friend of the family, and then even her boss, who is ends up being the father of Rachel. And then, of course, she has visions of Rachel as well, who yeah. is a ghost. Um, so she can't trust anybody that is in this work setting with her. She's a, she feels alone. Uh, so I think that that really more resembles a domestic noir rather than maybe a gothic novel. So staying on the topic of gothic novels, um, I want to talk about the original Mad Woman in the Attic, and that's Bertha Mason from Charlotte Bronte's gothic romance, Jane Eyre. So according to Ismar Ara, quote, Bertha Mason is described as the violent and insane ex-wife of Rochester, the male lead in the novel, although she has not been allowed to give us an account of her madness. All we learn about Bertha is either through Rochester's description of her madness or Jane's biased, because she is the leading lady and in love with Rochester, Mm -hmm. perception of her. Somebody who has read Jane Eyre carefully would be able to tell that all the insane acts that Bertha has committed in the book has also been directed at either Rochester, biting him, scratching him, setting fire to his room, (laughs) or the idea of marriage itself. She tears at Jane's veil, uh, wedding veil at one point. Uh, The character of Bertha Mason has been fully explored only in the counter-narrative by Jean Rees, a half-Creole and half-Welsh writer, in her book, Wide Sargasso Sea. Here, the narrative is is wrested away from Jane and given to Bertha, finally giving her a voice. Bertha's name in this book is Antoinette Causeway, which is changed to Bertha Mason by Rochester to sound more anglicized thus stripping away a part of her identity, unquote. Okay, so you're probably wondering, why am I bringing up Bertha? Fair warning, uh, this next quote is going to have some ableist language. So according to Tyrese L. Coleman for their essay, Reading Jane Eyre While Black, quote, And then I read the description of Bertha Mason, a woman, tall and large, with thick and dark hair hanging down her back, fearful and ghastly to me. It was a discolored face. It was a savage face. I wish I could forget the roll of red eyes and the fearful blackened inflation of liniments. Bertha Mason is mad, and she came of a mad family. Idiots and maniacs through three generations. Her mother, the Creole, was both a madwoman and a drunkard, unquote. Whoa. And that is from... Jane Eyre. So there are very strong implications there that Bertha is a black woman. Yeah. So she is a black woman in Gothic literature who is deemed quote unquote mad by the white people around her. If you read Wide Sargasso Sea, and I highly suggest you do, you will finally be able to hear her side of the story. I feel like this is very much like Miranda's story in Gothica. If we heard the story of Gothica through the eyes of all the white people in the film, we would think that she was losing her mind. And um, luckily, we are able to see everything in Gothica through Miranda's POV. So I think that that's a huge step forward when it comes to 
gothic romances and domestic noirs, having a black woman at the forefront, we're really able to see everything through her eyes, which is empowering. So, well, what's really funny is like, I never would have made the connection between those two characters. Like, I mean, I'm talking about Bertha and um, Miranda, Mm -hmm. like, but now that it's explained that way, I remember when I was younger reading Jane Eyre and feeling really, really bad for her, Bertha. Yeah. Like, I did not feel bad for Jane. <laughs> I was like, you bitch. <laughs> because I'm like, wow, poor Bertha has been like shut away from the world. And then... Like, I kind of had that same feeling with Miranda watching Gothica. I'm like, oh, man. Like, obviously, I don't think that she murdered her husband because she's, like, a very sound, reasonable person. And she's been, like, put in this situation that makes her feel like she is going insane. Yeah. And it's all at the hands of white people. (laughs) Yes. Yes, and that's why I really like Wide Sargasso Sea. Um, that when I actually first started reading that book, I didn't I don't think I even realized that it was connected to Jane Eyre. And in fact, I'm pretty sure I read Wide Sargasso Sea first before oh, I wow. read Jane Eyre. Yes. Um, so when I was reading Wide Sargasso Sea, I was like, okay, like this sucks, this woman, this poor goddamn woman. I know. And then you read Jane Eyre and you're like, you can't go back. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> you can't. You see as like, it's it's sad. It's really sad, actually. Yeah, it is. Um. Okay, so I want to briefly mention a gothic trope that could also possibly be seen in Gothica. Maybe. I don't know. I think I might be reaching, but you can tell me. <laughs> Uh, So it's called the Gothic Double. According to Heidi Strangle, quote, Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde exploits the possibilities provided by the discovery of the human psyche during the Gothic period. That is the question of the double. The appearance and reappearance of the Gothic Double also shows us that popular fiction provides a useful respiratory for our deepest fear, specifically the fear that that each of us is capable of great evil. Alongside Frankenstein's monster, the Wandering Jew, and the Byronic Vampire, David Putner sets a fourth gothic character, the Doppelganger, which in his view signifies the quote-unquote mask of innocence, and which is found in, for instance, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. On another occasion, he refers to the novel as a sec- as a record of a split personality and since the terms are far from being identical they need to be defined at the out- outset so the term doppelganger is defined in the new international webster's comprehensive dictionary of the english language as a person exactly like another a double a wraith especially a person not yet dead okay so there's that According to Alex Heath, the terms double and doppelganger are often used interchangeably in Gothic scholarship, as there is no formal definition for the Gothic double. 
though it can be generally understood as a physical representation of the division of the self, with two figures representing opposing sides of a good-evil dichotomy. The Gothic doppelganger is defined as the alter ego or identical double of a protagonist who seems to be either a victim of an identity theft perpetrated by a mimicking supernatural presence or subject to a paranoid hallucination. The split personality or dark half of the protagonist, an unleashed monster that acts as a physical manifestation of a dissociated part of the self, unquote. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So like I said, this might be a bit of a stretch, but that last line really stuck with me. And reminded me of Miranda being possessed by Rachel to kill her husband. Mm -hmm. So, could Rachel be Miranda's gothic double? (laughs) I think so. Am I reaching? (laughs) No. That's a very, very good point, honestly. Because I feel like since there's no real definition for the gothic double, it's sort of just like, this is what it looks like in this book, and this is what it looks like in that book. It's sort of kind of all over the place. Well, um, it's, it I feel like this like... could be it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a possession, right? Literally, <laughs> right? And Which she is... even says in the movie, like, "I, what does she say?" She says, "I'm not crazy. I'm possessed." Yes, <laughs> exactly. The best line. <laughs> it, it is the best line. Um, I'm gonna use that from now on. <laughs> Okay, so to end this section, which you obviously all can tell that I'm very passionate about. <laughs> it's it, so good, though. Like It goes on forever. <laughs> yes. Um, I want to read a few quotes from the book Darkly, Black History and America's Gothic Soul. Um, it is written by, um, I think it's L- Layla Taylor. I think I pronounced their name wrong incorrectly the last time I did it. Um, So I hope I did it right this time. I just tried to quickly search for it in the book. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, this book is awesome. Everyone needs to get it if you haven't already. It's so good. Um, So Taylor writes, Blackness in America is still in the middle, residing in the place between opposites, living in the present while carrying the past, being human but perceived as other, considered both a person and a product, both American and foreign, neither here nor there. Most gothic tales start with a journey. Frankenstein is a tale that begins with a journey at sea. There is something almost bureaucratic about Dracula as Harker details the of his business trip abroad. And portions of the mysteries of Udolfo read like a travel blog as the heroine describes the scenic view from her carriage of the hills of Italy. It's a powerlessness that parallels the forced displacement of captive Africans caught in the psychic Bermuda Triangle between Africa, the Caribbean, and America. For those who survived, it must have felt like a living purgatory, something in between life and death, here and there, the known and the unknown. Limbo is supposed to be a space of waiting, something in between heaven and hell, but limbo also represents a state of oblivion and nothingness. It's both a transition and a place of imprisonment, a home for the disappeared. Now, Taylor here is describing the journey that Africans 
were forced to make from Africa to the Caribbean and to America and how that journey is very similar to the journeys of the characters in Gothic literature. Wow. Yes. How it starts off as this journey. Everything seems to be okay and wonderful. And then you go on this journey where everything falls apart. Where it leads to, yeah, the the terror that you're about to experience. So I thought that that was extremely powerful and an amazing observation that I never even thought of until I read this. Mm-hmm. Um, the, they also say, quote, Horror has always been used to illuminate cultural anxieties and gives a voice to our collective fears. So what to make of the Gothic in America, a place which by the very nature of its founding is predisposed to a culture of anxiety. The dread of knowing the enemy at the gate is understandable. But in America, the enemy has already passed through it. It has been brought inside. The call is coming from inside the house. So here, uh, Taylor is saying that um, white people are the threat, obviously, that is inside the house, right? In the house being America. This I thought was really interesting because not only is uh, Miranda in a predominantly white setting, she is in her house. Yeah. um, And she's a prisoner. So there's that. And then, of course, going back to Taylor's description of... Africans being caught in limbo and being caught in purgatory during this journey. I think that that transfers greatly to our next, uh, really well to our next topic, which is about Anima Sola, mm-hmm. which is the tattoo on the sheriff. Um, so according to Stephen Kufari, quote, the motif's name, Anima Sola, loosely translates to solitary soul and is a depiction of a pious woman's soul suffering in the flames of purgatory as she awaits her transition to paradise. While this depiction has many interpretations, its most important meaning in the movie and in real life is the symbol of purgatory. Purgatory's religious usage refers to it as a temporary place of suffering that exists between death and paradise. However, it is also it also has a more general non-religious meaning, which simply refers to any temporary state of suffering. Rachel herself is the anima sola, i.e. the solitary soul of a woman temporarily suffering in purgatory. She is known several times as a tormented ghost enveloped in flames. However, Rachel is not the movie's only anima sola. Miranda and Chloe are also both anima solas, as are all the women who suffer at the evil whims of Doug and the sheriff. Doug being Miranda's husband. They are all in a temporary state of suffering, unquote. Just as a side note here, too, this film does a really good job at pointing out victimhood and Mm -hmm. that it's not just white women who are targeted. Right. It's Hispanic and black women, too, but, Mm -hmm. like, you don't hear their stories as often. Um, Or they're usually blamed for their victimization. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's interesting to see the headlines about Rachel and then the headlines about Miranda in the film, like how Mm -hmm. differently they're painted and how one is a tragedy and the other one is basically an accusation against Miranda. But I also want to point out here, especially with the anima sola, the use of elements in this movie Mm. and how fire and water come into play. Like Miranda is 
seen like swimming and doing laps in the pool before she interacts with Rachel for the first time. And it's a super rainy night when she crashes her car. And mm, yeah, I never thought of that. Yeah. And like the first time we like see Rachel and she touches Miranda, she's on fire. And she, like, burns Miranda right before she wakes up and she's disoriented in Woodward. When Miranda makes her escape, she dives into the pool to avoid being caught by the guards at the penitentiary, but Rachel is waiting in there for her, too. So it's like these two elements are always in opposition with one another until it appears that Miranda is the one who, like, quote-unquote, puts the fire out. Like, she saves these women from being caught in purgatory. And, like, especially at the end, too, where she's, like, fighting the sheriff and she, like, discovers that it's him. So I just thought that was really cool. And it was, like, really neat that they added that in there for this film. Absolutely. It was a great theme to mm-hmm. kind of throw in there. Um. Okay. So let's briefly talk about our final thought. We're coming full circle here. Uh, our final thought is the black final girl according to ty gooden quote the reasons behind the absence of black final girls in slasher flicks are pretty predictable in the genre's early years major filmmakers and casting agents were overwhelmingly white and male and didn't think a black woman-led film was necessary profitable nor relatable to the white target audience black women and girls weren't perceived as vulnerable people whom an audience could identify with as victims of violence because we were barely seen as people at all, much less valuable ones. This hasn't really changed over the years, even though black women-led horror and psychological thrillers are on the rise. It's a sentiment that is shared by many black horror aficionados, including Graveyard Shift Sisters founder and managing editor Ashley Blackwell, unquote. So that sounds familiar. Yeah. It's the strong black woman syndrome. And what it's happening here is that it's infecting the uh, ideas surrounding who deserves to be a final girl. Yes. It's that's yeah. Like there is no way around it. And it's so infuriating. And it's like I have to brace myself to every time I like watch older horror movies because I'm like, oh, no, I feel like they're either going to be the first victim or, like, they're not going to make it to the end. I've right. been, like, pleasantly surprised. Like, I can count on one hand the amount of times I've been pleasantly surprised. Mm. And it's shitty. Yeah, it's really disappointing that it still happens. I mean, we watched Uncanny Annie. Remember that? <laughs> oh, my God. And we thought for sure the black woman was going to live. Like, we are like, oh, yeah, she is going to be the hero of the story. Like, it's going to be all her. No, she dies. It was very disappointing. I was like, really? What year is it? Like, she is, she was made to be the hero of that story, too. And they completely killed her off. It was awful. It definitely, like, makes me recall, even over the last couple of years, like, remember when we went and saw Hellfest? <laughs> And we were like, nice, the black girl's going to make it to the end. And she doesn't. And we were like, what the fuck? I think one 
I can't remember. I have. I know some of our listeners really like that film, and I'm so sorry, but I really hated that film <laughs> so much. So but I think I think one of the black girls does live, but a white girl lives too. Yes. Okay. It's okay. like they couldn't do one or the other. They only they had to do both. Look at yeah. see, and it's like just have the black girl live. Like, I know. He like, cares enough about these characters. It's not that hard. And also, yeah. like, the new Blair Witch, they really could have done something with that, but they just didn't. And, like, ugh, it's exhausting. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Let's talk about some good things that have happened lately. Let's put some sugar cubes in our kofefe. <laughs> um, I actually have us one from a listener. Mm. Let me just pull it up real quick. Okay, so uh, this listener said, I can say this for one. If it wasn't for Brody, and Brody is their new dog, uh, who they call Chief Brody from oh. Jaws. <laughs> oh my god, yes. Brody. Um, I can say this for one. If it wasn't for Brody, I probably wouldn't even get dressed most days. He's learned to the routine of me usually taking him for two walks a day to work out that puppy energy. And that's the only reason I change out of my PJs most days. It's a break from it's a break in my quarantine routine and actually gets me outside because most days I would just go between my bed and the couch and back. So thank god goddess satan thank you all for dogs <laughs> we don't deserve them right oh my god they're too yes. good for us <laughs> yes so thank you so much to that listener who sent that to me um if y'all have any sugar cubes please let us know send them to our email goodmorningnancy at gmail.com or send it to us on social media we will definitely read them on here and let us know if you want us to share your name like i said i can't remember if this person <laughs> said yes you can do it um, so let me know. Uh, but for me, I guess my thing is like my husband just got back from a long trip uh, down south. He is fully vaccinated, so there was no worries about him getting COVID. But he did just he was gone for 11 days. So that was really tough for me. Oh, <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. Watching over our one year old all by myself because I don't oh. live at, near any friends or family because we moved here right when quarantine hit. Also, uh, I know it was kind of hard for me when he was gone, but my son was actually really good. There were only a few times that I broke down crying. So <laughs> it's okay. Um, but I also just bought a bunch of new comic books. Uh, they're all horror comic books. So I'm really excited to start reading those. Uh, so yeah, those are my sugar cubes. Oh, that's exciting. Yes. All right. So mine would be, first of all, I got my first dose of the vaccine. Yay. Because you're pregnant. I'm pregante. Uh, <laughs> so that was really nice, despite getting pretty sick from it <laughs> oh yeah well i heard the second dose is worse abby yeah i know <laughs> i get it easter weekend so i guess i'll be eating easter dinner in bed yeah um and then after that um i got that like early in the week and then my husband was like pack a bag we're gonna stay in a hotel for the weekend oh that's so, <laughs> so nice so we did and uh it was really nice to get away from everything i finished my sociology midterm 
and we went and stayed on the lake, and it was great. We had a great time. Good. I'm so happy for you. That's wonderful. Thank you. It was so much fun. Yay. We didn't go near anyone. <laughs> Perfect. That's good even not during COVID, really. I, I know. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you like what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on this show without any help from researchers or editors. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. If Patreon isn't your deal, and that's okay, you can also show us your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon and that will take you to our online shop. Yes, and we know times are really tough right now, so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. Don't forget, y'all, black lives still matter and trans lives still matter. Check out our show notes on how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.